You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Talavera de la Reina. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am in Talavera de la Reina or Talavera of the Queen, so-called because it was gifted by Alfonso XI, the King of Castile, León and Galicia to his wife, Constance of Portugal in the 14th century. Very apt on a sombre day at the Vuelta a España, particularly for the British riders in the race, many of whom were wearing black armbands on the stage today. Joining me today from the French Riviera, the Côte d'Azur, but a pure product of the Mitten State, known to you and me as Michigan. It's a man who has ridden four Vueltas a España, won a stage of the Tour de Suisse, being the US National Road Race Champion, and just signed for another year with AG2R Citroën. During this welter, he's made sweeter music than The Temptations. No, not just my imagination. He's laid down smoother grooves than the four tops. He wasn't even supposed to be on tonight, but we reached out and he was there. It's the Motown Marvel, our very own Detroit Lion. It's Lucky Larry Warbass. Hey, Daniel. Good, good to be back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Well, good to have you, Larry. And um, we were supposed to have Nicolas uh, Van Loy tonight, the Spanish journalist. Unfortunately, he was ill. He fell ill earlier in the day. Um, I'm reliably reliably informed he's feeling better this evening but Larry we did reach out as did the four tops and you were there so thank you very much <laughs> Larry um no problem to thank you to express our gratitude I've got a little present for you this evening um loyal listeners will remember one of our early podcasts in this Vuelta España we talked about your period as a stagiaire I think it was when you were a stagiaire with BMC in 2012 yeah it was yeah yeah and how you got a bit of a rough a rough introduction to the world of top tier professional cycling particularly from two of your teammates Manuel Quinciato the Italian and Marcus Burghardt the German they were so disgruntled with your performance your lack of assistance on one day in particular that they christened you the ghost which I thought was very very (laughs) unfair however I did mention then that Manuel Quinciato is a good friend of mine and of yours I think now Manuel was in Talavera de la Reina this afternoon. Well, and let's hear from him, shall we? Well, Larry, I've got a present for you this evening. We heard you earlier in the Wednesday talk about how you were christened the, the ghost, the fantasma at BMC by two experienced riders, Manuel Quinciato and Marcus Burkhardt. Well, I'm here with Manuel now. Uh, Manuel, do you, do you remember the apparition of the ghost, Larry Warbass, in that 2012 season? Uh, yes, I mean, I don't remember exactly, like, uh, if I was calling him a uh, ghost or something else, but for sure was uh, for Larry, Larry's good. I don't know if it was clear at the time, but for sure was, uh, yeah, for, uh, was the, of course, I didn't like maybe the way he was racing at the time, but the, for sure was for, see, on good, no? because basically in pro cycling, or you win or you have to win. And maybe, you know, I was a young rider and he wanted to hold on as long as possible. And uh, yeah, sometimes you didn't see him for a while, then suddenly he showed up like a ghost, as he probably was really a ghost. But yeah, it was no, 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 no. There was no will to hurt him, but just to to try to give him a good advice. Let's say. 
I think he acknowledges now that it was a good thing for him. But are you are you proud to see the career that Larry Warbass has had? I mean, I I, I, I believe that the, he had the engine. It was amazing to see him winning stage in Tour de Suisse, and everyone loved love Larry, including myself. But you know, at the end, I think a good friend or a good teammates also tells you what you don't like to hear. No, otherwise, uh, with a good job, you don't improve. So I hope <laughs> I'm not gonna like uh, give to myself any 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 compliment to what Larry did. But I hope that in some some way I could have uh, teach him something good. <laughs> well, Larry, what do you make of that? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh... You know, I think you could have recounted the fact that I was a stagiaire as well to him, you know? I think you kind of left that part out. But, but yeah, uh, no, that sounded about right. I mean, you know, I think our our um, our story's lined up, so so that was good at least. <laughs> a rare, a rare occasion when stories do line up on the cycling podcast. Um, Larry... <laughs> Today's stage, well, we, we didn't necessarily expect fireworks, but we thought it was one of those days when it could go either way. It could end in a sprint. It could end in a breakaway victory for someone. We thought there'd be aggressive racing, and we were slightly disappointed, I suppose, but that was largely down to the excellent work by one team, Trek Segafredo. But more of that in a minute. This morning, one of the riders who was certainly very hotly tipped was one of those British riders I alluded to who were wearing black armbands at the start today, and it was Fred Wright. Um, here's what he was saying this morning in Talavera de la Reina. We also started there this morning. We are climbing for 18 kilometers twice today, so who knows what the legs are going to be like. But yesterday I chilled as much as I could on the last climb, thinking about today, so hopefully we start with some good legs. So that was Fred Wright talking about how he tried to conserve his energy at the end of the stage, in the last hour of the stage yesterday. Um, Larry, Fred Wright didn't speak to the press after the stage today because while stage 19 of the Welter was underway, we, out of the blue, received a, a statement, a communique from Jumbo Visma in which Primoz Roglic, well, he held forth about his crash, the crash that put him out of the Vuelta España um, just a couple of days ago, which, of course, was caused, we discovered later, by a collision with Fred Wright. And, well, he's Primoz Roglic is not very happy still about that crash. Um, he said, My conclusion is that the way this crash happened is unacceptable. Not everyone saw it correctly. The crash was not caused by a bad road or a lack of safety, but by a rider's behaviour. I don't have eyes on my back, otherwise I would have run wide. Wright came from behind and rode the handlebars out of my hands before I knew it. So I, I suppose to protect Fred Wright from the inquisition that he was inevitably going to face at the finish, and Bahrain and Victoria didn't make him available after the stage, he actually finished the stage in second, as we'll hear in a minute. But before we talk about today's stage, Larry, what do you make of that statement from Primoz Roglic, which I'm reliably informed very much came from Primoz Roglic. It was his decision um, to say something on the matter today and to say something well, quite as explicit as what we just heard. Well, I would say the first thing of note is that he didn't mention plasticine. So um, your theory might be out on that one, but, you know, it was a good effort. Um, but beyond that, you know, in all seriousness, um, you know, I think it's tough because Primoz Roglic isn't the kind of guy who just go up, uh, 
you know, making up stories and trying to cause drama or anything like that. So, you know, if he felt it really so necessary to release um, a press release that said, you know, um, essentially Fred Wright is at fault, it's because he really does believe that he's at fault. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think it's hard for any of us um, at home to know really what happened because there was no overhead shot for us to see clearly what exactly happened. And I think the other thing that's hard is that all the guys were, you know, at their limit, at their max heart rate, you know, trying to put every single ounce of power into the pedals as they possibly could that, you know, they're not entirely lucid. And so even if Fred Wright did bump into him or knock him off his bike, I really can't believe that that was like a premeditated uh, action. You know, I don't think he meant to do it on purpose. Like I, I would be very, very surprised uh, if that was something he meant to do. So, um, you know, I think it's a bit harsh to go after him like that. Um but, uh, you know, I guess he's entitled to his own opinion. And if he wants to put that on a press release, he can. So it's just going to it's not going to be easy for Fred, right? I guess, you know, I mean, as I said, I think the initiative to put this out very much came from Primoz Roglic, but it is a team statement. And you both have couched this within a sort of wider discussion. There's a, a statement also from their um, their team manager, Richard Plugger, about safety in the sport gen- generally. But it didn't strike me as the kind of crash, the kind of incident that necessarily belongs in that context, because um, there was nothing. It was nothing to do with with a badly designed course or even reckless, obviously reckless riding. Um, uh, like you say, Larry, we don't have the overhead shots, so it's difficult for us to make a call on that. But it certainly didn't strike us as one where you know a rider had deviated or a rider had done anything malicious I mean I know Fred Wright after the crash a couple of days ago has been getting a pretty raw deal on social media for example Um, I think he was slightly surprised perturbed um, upset by that and this certainly won't help matters on that score will it definitely not no I think uh, I mean it's good that it didn't happen before the stage because if it did I doubt he would have been second today so um, you know, I'm sure it's going to be tough for him, but, uh, you know, I guess that's part of being, um, in elite sport is things like this can happen and you can get caught in the middle of uh, a situation like that. So, um, it's not going to be an easy thing to deal with, but, uh, you know, I guess, uh, he'll gain some kind of experience from it. So hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully it won't affect him too long term and, uh, he'll come out the better for it. Larry, time is ticking. We're going to have to get on to today's stage. And time is indeed about to tick for you because you are facing the challenge that we have every day here at the Vuelta a España that we give to our guests. You know what it is, what it's called, what it involves. It is the stage summary time trial. Larry Warbass, are you ready? I'm ready. Well, let's go to Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. And Larry, let's see you roll down the ramp and surmise for us what occurred on today's 19th stage of the Vuelta a España from Talavera de la Reina to Talavera de la Reina. Okay, well, since you already uh, named the the start and finish town, I guess I can miss that part out. It was 138.3 kilometers today. And uh, after a big fight for the break at the start, eventually three men um, ended up in the main breakaway for the day. 
those were Jonathan Caicedo, Brandon McNulty, and Ander Okamika. Um, they were only out front for 73 kilometers um, because there was a very motivated Trek Segafredo team riding behind. They didn't want to let them too large of a leash. And yeah, they tried to pull them back as soon as they could. Uh, you know, what I heard after the stage was that they were worried about a guy like Brandon McNulty being up there, um, known as a pretty strong rider. And yeah, they didn't want to give him too big a leash. So they were brought back at 50k to go um, before the top of the last climb. And on this last climb, um, we saw an effort by Bahrain to push the pace, trying to drop Mads Peterson, but uh, it was to no avail. Uh, he was very strong and stayed in the group without any, is- any issues, and he quite handily won the sprint at the end, even though he was well challenged by Fred Wright. So first, Mads Peterson, second, Fred Wright, and third was Vianney Vermeersch, which was a bit of a surprising one. So um, yeah, it was not exactly as action-packed of a day as we saw. My pick for yesterday, Lawson Craddock, did try to bridge up to the three guys for a moment, um, but unfortunately he was unsuccessful and caught back by the peloton. So, um, yeah, that was today. Wow. Um, you, I was worried for a second, Larry, that you were going to come in a bit short there. You were going to come in 15 seconds short or so, and we were going to have to talk about, <laughs> I don't know, cherries or ham or ex-girlfriends a la Fran Reyes. Um but fortunately uh, you saved as you you rescued us there um, Larry we have got a lot to get through this evening so without further ado let's hear from a few of the protagonists today we mentioned Trek Segafredo Mads Pedersen winning Trek Segafredo have had a fantastic Vuelta España the way they've ridden for Mads Pedersen has been extremely impressive we're going to hear from two of their riders who were in uncharacteristic roles today Antonio Tiberi the young Italian I think he's 20 years old and King Kenny Ellison, the friend of the cycling podcast. And again, um, uh, a rider who was pretty instrumental on a day that was not really ideal for a 52-kilogram climber. And finally, we're going to hear from the rider you just mentioned who finished third today, Gianni Vermeersch of Alpesin de Koenig. Thank you. This is my first time I do a lead out and... Uh, today was a very perfect day. Uh, all the day in front, uh, we controlled the race. Uh, yeah, Mad was uh, very confident in, uh, in the, leg, <laughs> the legs, and he had a very perfect condition. Uh, today we did a perfect, perfect work, I think, and we we ended in the, in the best mode. Uh, Kenny, well, another stage win for the team. Another day when Mads made you work, but you've been rewarded. I mean, how did you feel out there? Because your form's just been getting better and better throughout this Vuelta. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really happy. I mean, uh, for the whole team, I'm really proud of the effort today, the collective effort from uh, the first one to to the last one. Uh, as I told you, the mountain stage this year, I uh, try to, to save my legs for a day like today. So Mad is delivering behind so I'm really happy and today I'm proud to be to be part of the team collectively I think uh, we could have not have done uh, much better so really happy and uh, yeah I'm happy to to provide the support Mads deserve at the moment with the shape yeah what was the worry today in the bus we saw at one moment Bahrain certainly um, came to the front tried to make it hard but what was the big concern this morning if there were any in the bus oh uh, the profile <laughs> look at the profile and I say, oh, is it uh, is it uh, not uh, not too hard? And do the GC guy will try to go full and 
And also one of the day we tried to do it and like first week or something like this with one pay and we were not in a good day and we did not manage to, to do it. So yeah, today is a bit uh, the arc redemption when we, we did it well because uh, yeah, last time I was a bit disappointed to um, not manage to, to have good legs enough for Matt that day on this climb. So today we did it better and uh, yeah, I'm happy for that. And on days like this, where is the decision, the impetus coming from to work for a sprint? Is it from Stephen de Jong, the directors, or is it Mads that gets in front of everyone and says, look, today we can do this? Uh, yeah, for be honest, it's a bit of us because we have no GC aspiration because one pay has a lot of little issue here and there. So we decided to switch totally for Mads. So even for me, the mountain stage, I were like, Kenny, you go easy. And we, tr- we try to use do as much as we can in... Uh, on a stage like this, so it's a uh, yeah, new new thing also for me to, to work on this side of uh, sport. But uh, so yeah, every chance we got with Mads, even if it's small like today, if we were a file, no no problem, we will have try and we we, we say to ourselves, uh, Mads is the best chance we have to win stages here with the climber we are on the, the level in mountains. So Mads is the best chance we have to win, so we try everything to, to win with him. Have you got any strength left for tomorrow? We will see. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe I'm reserving for Madrid now to, for the sprint. <laughs> for me, actually, it was uh, the last stage because tomorrow is definitely too hard. And the last day we go uh, all in for uh, another victory with them. So uh, I'm happy I could uh, take this uh, third place. I didn't spoke a lot yet with uh, Remco, but I finished him today with his victory yesterday, which was already great, actually. But uh, yeah, Belgium, it's, it, it would be really nice. Uh, there is a lot of pressure on, uh, on Remco, but now uh, he got a lot of critics already in Belgium. So uh, now he's uh, giving an answer. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. You can find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. El Diario Remco, the Daily Remco. Uh, yeah, obviously, and and I mean, for sure, it's good for the head. It's good for the morale. But uh, uh, I'm gonna keep repeating. We we have to be careful still for the next two days. I think for what we we did the last three weeks already is uh, really impressive and uh, a new step in our uh, team development but uh, yeah now it's all about keep fighting and then keep the head strong and uh, two more days well Larry that was our leader at this Vuelta España inching ever closer to becoming the first Belgian Grand Tour winner for 44 years Larry since Johan de Munch in the, the Pink Panther in the 1978 Giro d'Italia that's an, an extraordinary start isn't it yeah, that's actually pretty crazy. Uh, I, I was really surprised by that when I heard that sort of at the beginning of this Vuelta, um, just because, you know, it's a country with so much cycling history and so many cyclists 
Uh, I just expected there would have been one more recently than that. Speaking of Belgian, Belgians, Belgium, uh, I was getting some correspondence from some Belgian friends of the podcast, loyal listeners this morning. Um, Charlotte Elton is someone who's contributed to the podcast in the, in the past, notably with an excellent song about where we were going wrong with all of our pronunciations of Belgian riders at the Giro a couple of years ago. Anyway, Charlotte lives not far from where Remco is from, and there was some initiative today whereby all the kids, young school kids, were going to school dressed in red as a nod to what was happening in Spain. Charlotte said, also, we're very consistent in our Belgian bashing um, on the cycling podcast. She can tell that we don't don't have much time for Remco. I think that's a little bit harsh. And Remco has certainly, well, I think he's grown on a lot of people in this Vuelta a España. As I've said many times, he's conducted himself impeccably in the mix zone in the mornings and in the afternoons after stages. Interesting, we just heard a bit of him this morning, um, I thought he was alluding slightly, and I've heard that privately he has also alluded to the fact that his team needs reinforcements for Grand Tours, will need reinforcements for Grand Tours next year. I don't think there are too many spots still up for grabs at Quickstep. I think their recruitment is pretty much done. Um, but, I mean, they've got through this Vuelta España as... Patrick Lefebvre told me a few days ago in our Encuentro del Día, where was that? Somewhere down on the Costa Blanca. He sort of said that a rising tide um, lifts all boats, that the team's level would rise to the level of Remco. And, and that's kind of been the case, hasn't it, Larry? Yeah, you know, I think like they've done a really good job with the guys they have. But, you know, it's hard because, yeah, they don't have that same stage racing pedigree as Jumbo, for example. Um and, you know, I think they've always been a team that really focused on the sprints. So, um, you know, I guess with that, it's going to be hard to, you know, ride the way Jumbo rides or Ineos, for example. Um, but they've definitely done a good job with the guys that they have at the race. That's for sure. Larry, talking of riding sort of against one's nature or being made to ride against one's nature, we heard from King Kenny Ellison. Good friend of yours, isn't he, Kenny? Yeah, yeah, friend he used of, to live here, uh, yeah, here in Nice, so we used to train together quite a lot. Um, but unfortunately, he moved to Andorra a couple years ago now. So uh, unfortunately, I haven't seen Kenny as much uh, as I used to, that's for sure. But Larry, that experience, you're, I, would, I would class you as a climber, an ace climber, a mountain goat. <laughs> that experience of being a climber and being made asked to ride for a sprinter or you know getting onto the bus in the morning and not really knowing what your job is going to be and someone whether it's in the management or one of your teammates has sort of put their hand up and said look tomorrow could be a good day for me and all of a sudden you're entrusted with as I say riding on the front or riding on terrain that you're not necessarily best suited to um have you had that experience Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like, while I'm sort of a climber, I'm more of like an all arounder. So I am able to help like in kind of a lot of different scenarios. So I have ended up helping like our sprinters um, before and stuff on the teams I've been on. You know, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be the last lead out man unless it's like an uphill uh, finish. But, um, you know, like a long uphill sprint or something like that. But um yeah, I've definitely helped quite quite a lot in the in the finishes uh, leading into sprints, you know, up to like the last kilometer or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's something I enjoy in a stage like today, actually. It's a little bit different because um, as you saw, like they went pretty hard on that um, 
second to or that last climb and, uh, you know, whittled down the bunch quite a bit. And so in a situation like that, actually, that's a job that personally I really enjoy because if there's 50, I think there were 55 guys that finished in the bunch today. And if there's 55 guys in the bunch, it's actually like pretty simple to do a lead out. You just have to be strong. Um, so, so yeah, it's not like you're bumping bars with, uh, all the lead out men because most of them would have been dropped today. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's a kind of fun to get involved like that. And on a day that's been super hard and you're in the last week of a grand tour, it's, it's a bit simpler, um, because you really just need the legs. Um, so yeah. It's been notable in this World Tour Espana, Larry, how Maz Pedersen, I don't know whether it's Maz Pedersen and I sort of asked Kenny Ellis on this or whether it's the direct sportives, but they've really rallied everyone around the same cause. And you can tell how much conviction they're riding with. I mean, I guess that comes naturally when you know you've got a leader in form um, who is going to deliver. But I also suspect that in this case, um, Mads Pedersen's leadership qualities and his ability to get people, to get everyone on the same boat, um, that has played a big part as well. And I suspect that's not the case with all leaders. There are some leaders you would more readily sacrifice yourself for than others. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think like um, you, you definitely can see that a lot in certain teams is there are some guys that, you know, they go out of their way to just be so grateful, um, you know, or do things for the guys uh, who helped them and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, there are certain leaders that you're just so excited. Um, or, you know, and who, who are in the, the best end, ones like, you've had? Who are the best ones you've actually, had? Actually, I have to say um, Benoit Kosnefroff for me is like one of the best um, leaders I've actually had as just like a, a guy to ride for because he is just extremely grateful. And even even when he was like, uh, you know, pretty much like a neo pro, um, I remember we we won the Tour de Limousin with him, you know. And, uh, you know, so he would have been on like a Neo Pro salary, wouldn't have had that much. And I remember he like sent everyone a gift after after the race, you know, and it wasn't like a giant race or anything. But, you know, he went out of his way to really thank everyone. And, and that's kind of just gone along. Um, yeah, I guess like every race I've done with him, you know, he's just so grateful for the work that you do. And, you know, he goes out of his way to thank you and to tell, you know, the team and the team boss, like, you know, how good a job each guy did who did a good job and things like that. And, you know, that really means a lot to riders because sometimes if you help and, uh, you know, you don't really get anything back or any feedback or anything, you know, it doesn't exactly motivate you to uh, do, you know, like do the same thing again or, you know. Um, so, was, yeah, he's someone who he really goes what, out of his way and appreciate what that. Was the what was the gift, Larry? Well, it was actually a wonder box. I don't know. Have you heard of that? I don't know if that exists no, in the UK. No. It's this thing in, in France um, where um, they come in different forms. But like this one, for example, was like you get dinner for two at like uh, a number yeah. of different restaurants around, you know, like nice um, yeah, restaurants like around yeah. France. Yeah, exactly. So things like, you know, it was like, you know, which was like, I just thought really nice for a guy who was like, you know, like a neo pro not making very much money or anything, you know, to go out of his way to like do that, you know, for not even like the biggest race or anything. Uh, I just thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's been common practice for a while now in professional cycling to gift people watches, hasn't it? Um, certainly yeah, the, unfortunately the I've of... not been on one of the watch oh, uh, gifting uh, uh, <laughs> ends, but you know, that's okay. 
I've heard of leaders giving people, buying people cars even in more extreme wow. cases after world championship wins. Um, but Larry, does so does that hold true then that you you will work for a guy that you like much more than you will work for a guy that you don't like? I mean, if you had the experience oh, of... No, no, of, I think it's just like you might go the extra above and beyond, you know, to the depths of your capabilities, you know, for a guy that you like, you know, for a guy that's like your friend. Um, whereas like someone who doesn't, you know, isn't very gracious or, you know, if you weren't a big fan of them or something, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you're going to do your job. You're always going to do your job. But there are very varying degrees of levels that you can do that job to. And, um, you know, I think a good leader is aware that that's the case and they're gonna you know i guess motivate their guys to give every last you know bit that they can and i think that makes a difference in the end well it's been a great vuelta a España for trek segafredo i guess they'll get another opportunity in madrid on sunday i mean pedersen looks like the fastest sprinter in the race um obviously there'll be a few other guys who would drop today who may be in with a shout like Tim Merlier uh, on Sunday. But Larry, a day like today, the way it was ridden, um, how much energy will that cost the general classification guys who will do battle? We think they'll do battle tomorrow on the last mountain stage of this world and the last opportunity to change anything on GC. I mean, I think for the GC guys today, today was pretty easy. You know, I think uh, if you're like one of the best climbers to get in a 60-man group, um you know, over a climb is, is not hard. So, um, I think for most of the guys, they'll have been happy that it wasn't just an insane battle the whole day and that they could stay in the bunch somewhat calmly. Um, I'm sure it was fast and I'm sure it wasn't like an easy pace, but, um, you know, I think there's something, even the fact that there's just less stress when there's a team riding and you kind of know the foregone conclusion of the stage. Um, I think there's something to that mental aspect that's a little more calming and you don't have to worry about a fight, uh, you know, you know, for the break or this or that or the other thing. Um, and yeah, you can just really focus on tomorrow. So I think probably a lot of the guys conserved energy and if not physical energy, mental energy today to get ready for tomorrow. Are you having much contact, Larry, with your teammates, with your AG2R teammates at the Vuelta? Um, no, not too much. I talked to Bob like, uh, the other day um but that was pretty much it um yeah i don't know i haven't talked to them too much i don't want to like you know bother the guys in the race too much you know i think uh yeah you're pretty pretty focused on the race when you're there and and yeah so what's, no i haven't talked to them too much what's the what's the protocol with group chats at races is there a separate group set up on whatsapp for every race or is there a exactly is, yeah Okay, so it's and is the one uh, one that, that runs throughout the whole season when everyone's on. Um, maybe, yeah, there would be like a, a a riders WhatsApp group that like essentially just like if there's some kind of logistic thing or whatever that we need to talk about all the riders, we talk about that, and then you know yeah, if someone wins a race, everyone's like congratulations or whatever. But um, but yeah, then when you're at the race, there will be um, yeah a group chat just. Uh, between everyone who's at the race to discuss everything in the race and uh, logistics and everything like that. Who's the funniest, almost active person on the AG2R team group chat and who's the person who it's impossible to get to acknowledge messages or respond to anything? 
Uh, I would say probably a guy like Sean Buzan's one of the guys who would re- respond the last. Um, you know, it's like there's always the same, like, three or four guys. You know, like, if you're supposed to fill something out, for example, like, prize money. To get the prize money, you have to fill out, I don't know, some dumb form online that, like, <laughs> is really, for some reason, complicated to, like, do correctly. Um there's always like the same three or four guys who are last. And I happen to be one of the, the guys who who's uh, a little bit behind on that. Um, I'm usually in the last four. Um, but the guy who would be most on point and on top of everything is Nons Peters. He's like, mm. he's like, uh, yeah, just he's a little bit OCD and really um, everything, you know, has to be 100 percent dialed and perfect and whatever. Um, so he is actually the guy who sort of arranges a lot of the logistical things like the prize money and things like that. And then if I was going to say the most funny, it's hard to say, but, um, if you're at the race, less on WhatsApp, we don't really joke that much. We don't really have that much banter going on the like team WhatsApp group because there'd just be too many messages. But I would say at the race is one of the funniest guys is, uh, uh, Von Hecke. He's pretty funny. There we go. We just said a positive thing about a Belgian now. So, Any examples so of his good. material, Larry? Before we before uh, we conclude this part, <laughs> I don't know. I can't really. I can't really think of anything. But he tells some stories, and you know, he has a kind of a funny accent when he speaks French, and and so it's just hilarious. He's just kind of a goofy guy. So, sorry, sorry. I, I wish I could think of a story <laughs> more quickly, but uh, but yeah. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, where we reach for our shovels and go digging for pop music gold in the dingy underworld of the Vuelta's official songs through the ages, lost in inebriated fantasies of Fernando Escartin's Macarena, Superman Lopez crumping across the plains of Castilla-La Mancha, or Mark Soler's Gangnam Style down the Paseo del Prado on Sunday night. Today I wanted to try, try Larry, to whip up some excitement ahead of tomorrow's supposed to be mountain showdown in the mountains to the northwest of Madrid, the Sierra de Guadarrama that we've mentioned many times during this Vuelta. So I'm going back to 1985, a year when the Vuelta's official song was provided by Juan Carlos Ramos Vaquero, better known in Spain as Ivan. The singer had chosen the stage name to avoid confusion with the reigning king of Spain, Juan Carlos. Ivan had once seemed destined for fame as a footballer, having played for Real Madrid's youth teams. His musical talent was spotted when one of his teammates told their father that Ivan, then still Juan Carlos, wrote songs in his spare time. His 1985 official Vuelta song was called Baila or Dance. After superstardom in the 1980s and 1990s, Ivan emigrated to a quieter life in Australia where his daughter, Natalia Ramos, is now a well-known actress. The 1985 Welter began in Valladolid with a TT a prologue won by the Dutchman Bert Oosterbosch, who would tragically die of a heart attack four years later, aged just 31. The first week of the race was notable mainly for the emergence of a prodigious new Spanish talent, the 20-year-old Miguel Indurain, 
he took the jersey on stage or the leader's jersey the the Mayot Amarillo yellow jersey on stage two held it for four days and remarkably would never wear it again by the time the race reached the penultimate stage and the Sierra de Guadarrama, a Scotsman, Robert Miller, led a Colombian, Francisco Pacho Rodriguez, by 10 seconds and the Spaniard, Peo Ruiz Cabastani, by just over a minute. But as detailed brilliantly by our great friend and leader, Richard Moore, in his In Search of Robert Miller, a Spanish armada consisting of José Recio and and Pedro Delgado set sail just as Miller punctured at the foot of the Puerto de Cotos. Miller was initially unconcerned upon rejoining the main peloton, but a combination of some partisan Spanish TV moto pilots, a misguided blinking contest engaged by his Peugeot DS, and the suspicion that other teams had been paid by the Spaniards not to assist the chase ended up costing Miller the Vuelta and gifting it to Delgado. It would henceforth be known by many as the stolen Vuelta and one of many occasions when the champagne shower of Vuelta leader could already taste turn to acid rain on the Sierra de Guadarrama. Well, that's a bit bleak, isn't it? Acid rain. My word. Yeah. Um, Larry, I don't know if we're going to see acid rain tomorrow on the Sierra de Guadarrama. I hope not, but maybe we'll see some drama. No. Maybe we we'll will see, see some uh, fireworks, I think. Do you know what we will see, Larry? We're going to see Alejandro Valverde's last mountain stage in Vuelta a España. And Valverde, 42 years of age. He's been an institution in Spanish cycling over the last... Two decades, as mentioned earlier in the Vuelta, his first Vuelta a España was 2002 when Juan Ayuso, who's currently third in general classification, was born. He was born during that Vuelta a España. A few highlights of Valverde's Palmares, um, four Tour de France stage wins, a Giro stage win, 12 Vuelta stages, one overall win. Uh, he's three times Spanish national champion, five Fleche Wallons, four Liege Baston Liege, two San Sebastians, one Worlds. A Dauphiné, a Basque Country, seven World Championship medals. Um, also a guy with a, a controversial past, shall we say. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But we've been trying to talk to him for a while um, at the starts here at the Vuelta a España. And well, finally this morning we did get to have a word with Valverde. Um, I am going to live dub the interview. This is a new dubbing technique that we've been experimenting with on the second <laughs> podcast during the Vuelta a España. So let's hear Alejandro Valverde. And I'm going to tell you what he said. No, in general, todos los días, el cariño del público, las salidas, las llegadas durante los pueblos, en los He puertos, said todo, everything's been great up until now on the Vuelta. It's hard to choose just one thing that I've liked. Just the affection from the fans at the starts, at the finishes, in the towns, on the climbs. Every day has been fantastic. As for the decision to quit now, I've really put to bed any indecision about that. I've decided, and that's that. I think it's time. And I'm also enjoying this world because of how well Enric Mas is going and how well the team is riding. I don't know about legacy. I just hope people see that Alejandro Valverde has given all of himself to cycling and that I've left some good memories. What advice would I give to the emerging generation, the Ayusos, the Avenipoles? Oh, nothing. They look to me as though they're enjoying themselves. They're comfortable in their own skin and they just have to continue like this. They're big champions already. Now, Larry... Um, always difficult to evaluate Alejandro Valverde because there are a lot of people who say very positive things about it. However, those of us who have followed the sport or covered the sport for a long time cannot get one thing out of our head and that is that he served an 18-month suspension 
um, in 2009. It was an, a, a belated suspension um, for because of the events of Operación Puerto when he was linked to the Spanish gynecologist Eufemiano Fuentes and then DNA tests were done on blood that was found in Fuentes' apartment and clinic in Madrid and it was proven to belong to Alejandro Valverde. He has admitted that he knew Fuentes, but he has never really admitted having cheated in any way. Larry, um, as someone who only really started following the sport in 2012, how do you reconcile these, these, well, these, not just two things, but multiple things? On the one hand, Valverde's palmares, his longevity, the fact that by general consensus, he's a nice guy who gets on with people in the peloton, and that slightly murky side to his past. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. I mean, to be honest, actually, when I was 2012, I will say I remember Valverde back from the Lance days because I did watch the Tour de France when Lance was doing it. And I remember this like young Spanish kid just starting who like uh, was had like a really good punch and uh, was definitely challenging Lance on some stages and stuff. And I don't remember which tour that was. So that's actually my first memories of Valverde. And I remember being actually quite a big fan of him then. Um so, yeah, you know, it's hard uh, because obviously this guy, um, he crossed a lot of generations. Um, so, you know, I don't think he's the only one that had a questionable past that many of us have raced with. Um, yeah, he's, you know, almost the, he's almost the last one left, actually. Um, he's the last okay, kind yeah, of... Yeah, that's, that's maybe possible. Yeah, he's the last sort of relic of that... It, of that generation and his retirement really is the last time where these questions will be asked and be put to guys like you or even younger riders I asked about him today um and and they will have that kind of currency that relevance of being about someone who is still in the peloton yeah so I mean I guess what a lot of guys would say in the bunch is like say what you will about his past, but he's like a damn good bike racer. Um, so, you know, I think everyone's well aware that, um, yeah, he, he was probably involved in some bad shit back in the day. Um, who knows? Uh, hopefully, you know, he stopped that after. I, I have no idea. Um, but uh, the one thing you have to admit is that he's like really, he's just a really good bike racer. Um, beyond the physical part of it or anything you know and um so i think people can appreciate how good of a bike racer he is and kind of like separate the fact that um you know uh yeah he did what he did uh whenever he did it so um yeah i think it's it's tough but i think if you were going to be a bike racer in um the era that I have raced through is like, you have to accept that a lot of the guys that you're racing with would have, or, you know, raced with would have gone through, um, a different era, you know? Um, and yeah, they were still going to be in the Peloton and, you know, hopefully they just weren't doing the same things that they did before. So, um, you know, it's the same thing, you know, a lot of the directors still in the sport, a lot of the staff were all involved in like that era that, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think the majority of the people involved in cycling were somehow involved in those sort of things. So it's something that, you know, you have to acknowledge happened. Um, but we just have to be grateful that uh, our generation doesn't have to deal with that. Or at least, you know, um, it's very, you know, at least it's very possible to be a very successful bike racer without doing that. 
you know, I'm sure there's always going to be people who um, cross the line, you know, not just in sport, but in anything. Um, but I think it's a lot smaller fraction now than it used to be. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it is what it is. Um, but you have to say that he is a really good bike racer and he's a really classy bike racer. So, um, yeah, and he's cool to watch, you know, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, uh, he's a good bike racer to watch. So I think that's kind of like, that's sort of my opinion, and I know a lot of uh, guys share the same um, views as me. Well, Larry, I, I suppose how you feel about him now and you feel about what are his real abilities, they, well, they're linked to your general feelings about how clean the sport is. We'll come on to that in a minute. Let's just hear what a few other people think of Alejandro Valverde. Over the last couple of days, I've been speaking to um, riders who well, rode with him, raced with him, guys of his, what we would call his generation, younger riders. So here are a few of them. Uh, Juan Mangarate is now a uh, direct sportif for EF, EF Education Easy Post. You'll hear his voice first. Then Dario Catallo, who was Valverde's teammate at Movistar and now rides for Trek Segafredo. And then Ben O'Connor, your teammate, Larry. Let's hear from that trio. I don't know how big this uh, job was for him, because at the end, I have the feeling that for him it was not a, a job. It was, it was something that it didn't cost him energy. Like, uh, for him, it was kind of a game, you know? He had fun every day. He goes... He trains every day with 30 or 40 cyclists to these riders, you know. And uh, he is not a rider that he was following a really specific plan during his career. And uh, he is like all-star rider with his own feelings. And I think it's, that is, that's the secret. And then to, to have a, such a long career, you need to be really professional, to take care about all the details. And uh, I mean, if you see him, you see how skinny he is since the, the beginning of the year till the end. He's a rider that is, yeah. I mean, it's a reference for a lot of riders in the peloton. And uh, I don't know, he's, he, how long is his career? You know, probably better than me. But maybe it's 20, well, he, 20 years. Oh, no, 17 or 18, I don't know, years long, his career, probably. Juan Ayuso was born during the Vuelta a España that was Valverde's first, 2002. He can be his father. <laughs> if you have seen his... Uh, how he was racing when he was young he was like young or in the first years he was in the back of the peloton having fun and blah 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 and with the new cycling we have we never see him anymore in the back of the peloton he is always ready he's always competitive he's uh, racing with the whole team in front this costs you energy mental energy too you know but he found his um, comfort zone in front of the peloton it's a uh, uh, it's a reference, as I said before, to many riders. Dario, this Vuelta is the last one for Nibali, for Valverde. You've been the teammates of both guys. You're carrying on, aren't you, next year? Yeah, I, I will keep for normally for other two years. So, uh, and it's strange to, to see the big riders like them will will leave uh, cycling, and this is uh, the last Grand Tour for them. And sometimes I speak with them in uh, in the group, uh, also with Valverde. I ask, do, do you really re realize that in one week 
all this is over, all the people, when we pass through the people on the roads. And uh, you, can, you can read in their face that there's, there's something that they already feel is, is sad at that moment, yes, to, to realize that, uh, that all that story, all this racing, since they, when they were a child, not, not only as a worker, as a professional rider, but since we, they are kids, and uh, this is going over, and you can read it in their face. They really take it as a game, they really enjoy the bicycle like a, a guy of 17 years old, so doesn't look doesn't look 40 years old at all so uh, I think that is is secret and also for sure because he have legs he have uh, good condition to, to, to do it to enjoy it fully and it's really nice to see a big champion like that to, to take cycling with that spirit oh, I mean he's done everything I mean he's good in the bunch he's got respect in the bunch and he always does his job whether it's winning races or helping others so Yeah. Is this his last race? This is his last race? Uh, last Walter. Oh, last Walter. Yeah, fair. Well, it'd be cool for him if he could win a stage to, to cap it off here in Spain. Um, but yeah, I think he's got some big work to do with Henrik uh, today and tomorrow. So, Larry, uh, well, there we heard some interesting views on Alejandro Valverde and certainly the, the secrets of his longevity Um, certainly from Juan Margarate, this, this characteristic that Valverde has always had of treating cycling like a game. We've always heard that you know, he goes out in these big groups in Murcia and they're sort of lifelong friends and they have these ad hoc impromptu sort of races and he's not too scientific in his approach. But coming back to the question I sort of left floating, hanging in the air earlier, Larry, let's talk about the, the current state of cycling vis-a-vis doping. Um, I've had conversations with you and a few other riders in the last few months about the level of testing at the moment. And I guess your confidence in how clean cycling is is, is also very much linked to how much testing is going on, um, how solid you think um, the measures in place are to combat doping. Just talk to me a little bit about that and the trend that you've seen over the past two or three years. Yeah, so, you know, I think there was a, quite a big change um, when we went from... Uh, the CADF, I think it was called, the Cycling Anti-Doping Foundation, to the ITA. Um, so that transition happened, I don't know, maybe at the beginning of this year or the end of last year. I don't really know which. Um, and, yeah, like I think a lot of people mentioned, is there wasn't a very whole lot of testing for a while, which I think worried some, some people. Um, but then uh, recently they've definitely done the opposite. So, yeah, now, I mean... I know I've been tested quite a lot, um, probably more than I ever have been um, in another year of my career. Um, and and that's like out of competition. And I know like, yeah, a lot of guys um, I'm aware of have been tested quite a bit. So, um, you know, I definitely think they're ramping that up. But, you know, I know like what I've read is that they're trying to sort of um, go at it from different ways. So, you know, not just like... Um, trying to get like positive tests, but using police and, you know, things like, you know, the raids that we've seen, um, you know, to try to attack it from a different way, um, which I think, yeah, could be effective. I'm not really sure. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, uh, I really believe that the sport is the majority clean now. And yeah, like I just said before, you know, there's always going to be people who cheat in every walk of life. Um, so uh, we're never going to see, 
you know, zero cheaters um, in our sport or in any other. Um, but I'm 100% sure that you can win big bike races clean. Uh, and I have a lot of confidence in my teammates and my friends who I train with. And, you know, I ride with a lot of the best guys in the world here. So, um, yeah, I have a lot of confidence in the guys and a lot of confidence in the sport now. So, um, so yeah, for me, that's good. Um, but yeah, obviously you never know what happens behind closed doors and there's always a possibility, but, um, I'd say for the most part, I, I have quite a lot of confidence that the Peloton is I mean, for the most part clean. Uh, Larry, just to pick up on something you said earlier, it was at the start of 2021 that the ITA took on anti-doping professional okay. cycling. Um, but one thing we've said on the podcast a lot over the last couple of years is that we're deprived of, of the information that positive tests and doping rates used to give us because inevitably, you know, if the top four in the Tour de France or, or four of the top ten were testing positive for a particular substance, then you could reasonably draw conclusions about the other guys in and around them. And in the absence of any real positive test, for big riders in the last few years we're, we're sort of guessing and and you know that can that can engender a level of optimism in the state of the sport but then occasionally you have conversations like i had a conversation with michael rasmussen at the tour de france and you know i think michael rasmussen now there was a time when he he would have claimed to know what was going on now michael is honest and says no i've got no idea what is going on but i can see that theoretically one could do this this and this however um i would uh, I, I would caveat that with the, the sense we all have that there has been a culture change and that um, riders teams doctors are no longer minded to look for every single way where they can exploit well not just exploit rules legally but illegally um, and then you know there's another another side to the the conversation which is about gray areas and tues and legal loopholes that one can possibly thread the needle through i mean just on on that last issue larry tues um well the 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 net has been sort of tightened on cortisone but how confident are you that those things aren't being exploited i mean that i have really no idea but i will say probably like the the whole cortisone thing with this year, you know, they like made the rule that was in place for MPCC teams before, um, in place for everyone, if I'm correct. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, pretty much now if a guy is going to take cortisone, he has to stop racing for a certain amount of days or, you know, like eight days or something like that. So, um, you know, if that was being exploited before, hopefully, uh, this rule will, you know, definitely help that. Um, but yeah, I don't really know. Um, you know, it's not something that I've been exposed to, but, uh, just because I haven't been exposed to it doesn't mean that it's not, uh, or hasn't been going on in the past. So, um, surely it happened, uh, over the last, you know, decade, but, uh, I'm hoping now with these new rules, uh, that that is going to happen or is happening a lot less. Larry, let's move on to something totally different to end this part it's time for today's Encuentro del Día um, it's with a but before that can I just yes. say one thing about Valverde yes. that I actually really appreciate um, I mean the one thing that I noticed sorry this is kind of going back like two, two steps now but just I just love there's all these sort of like myths about Valverde and his training and everything and so yeah he rides with like this group of whatever I mean Garate said like 40 of his friends I heard something like 20 but anyway 
They meet at the same place every single day, same time, and he rides the exact same loop every single day, and they, like, sprint for town signs, and I guess at the end, he just kind of, like, slowly ramps up the pace on a climb until he drops everyone. And to me, that's just so cool that, like, that's how he still trains in today's age of, like, super scientific intervals, all this kind of stuff, and and it works, you know? So, I don't know, I just I just think that's probably one thing that like has really kept him going for so long is like uh you know he's literally just going out and riding with his mates uh every single day and i think that's pretty sweet um so yeah there is there is a romance to that larry and i'm going to try to segue now into well into the encuentro del dia another another rider about whom there is a certain mystique not least thanks to podcasts he's done with us uh, Hugh Carthy of EF Education Easy Post um, I have very fond memories of the podcast I think he did with Mitch Docker where he talked about um, how he likes nothing more after a big stage race than to go to some sort of grimy transport calf um, outside Pamplona and order a menu del dia the, the grimier and 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 uns- more unsophisticated or less sophisticated the better heard in the Vuelta a España a couple of years ago hasn't been going quite as well for Hugh Carthy in this year's Vuelta he's 25th on general classification just under an hour behind Remco Evnepoel but of course his team did have a stage win a couple of days ago with Rigoberto Uran here's Hugh Carthy <laughs> El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Um, well, we talked earlier in the world to you about your form coming in here. I mean, you're in the break yesterday. How, how has it gone the last week or so? Yeah, getting better, getting better. Uh, yeah, feeling good. I had a bit of a cold at the beginning of the second week, so it's a bit, a bit f- up. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling good now, recovering well. and uh, I don't think today's a day for me. It's uh, probably just stay... Stay with Rigo and wait for tomorrow. Uh, so yeah, we're feeling good. And wishing, yeah, wishing he could go back in time. But uh, yeah, it is what it is. I think we've had a good welter overall, and we've, we've moved on quite quickly this, this last week. The morale in the team didn't dip, and we were able to regroup the side of, well, the last rest day, and uh, come out really well. I think we've, uh, yesterday we we missed out on a good result with the, the way the race ended up, but. With Rigo win and then the attitude of the team, I think uh, I think something else good could happen between now and Madrid. So uh, everyone's excited and yeah, happy to happy to still be racing. In. Have you taken much from Rigo over the last two or three years? Um, I mean, either advice he's given you or just things you've observed. Uh, yeah, I think in some ways quite similar. I think we're both sort of appear with results when you maybe at least expect it you know uh, we're not those riders that just constantly churn out top fives top fives top three uh, we sort of pop up on our day and I think to be able to do that requires patience and uh, like yeah strong and holding nerve in times when it's difficult especially now with the situation the team and uh, the world tour uh, there's no moment like now to produce a big result uh, to sort of rally the team and get a run going so yeah you have to learn learn that from someone like that if, when things aren't going so great you just got to ride the ride the storm and, uh, and be confident that you'll produce it when it matters uh, yeah that's the biggest thing he's shown 
Yeah, other than that, the racing there, he races well. He's a good ambassador for the team and the sport, his country, and like cycling as a community as well. Uh, it's not the primary thing in his life. It, I think it's important. I think he puts everything into perspective sometimes. So, yeah, a lot of things. I mean, he had that experience as well, finishing second in a tour, and then people expecting him to expecting him to follow up. I mean, since you're third place in the world, have you found any aspects of that difficult? Uh, yes and no. It's been... I think it was quite easy the following year, so last year again, because the confidence was still high and then uh, in the summer last year I wasn't so good. I was... I struggled a bit, and then when things go wrong, if it was hard to, it was sort of hard to deal with. But uh, and this year again, it's not been an easy year with illness and different things going on. So, uh, but yeah, the, for me, the big turning point since then is the Giro this year. It wasn't the best result, but uh, it wasn't what I wanted. But it was where I should have been, especially in the last week. So. Uh, yeah, I think now it's Grand Tours are hard, you know, they've always been hard, but I think now to aim for a top five or a top ten isn't, isn't easy. You see now there are guys in the top 15 that are jumping in breaks and there's, there's 20 guys going for top ten, you know, it's, it's difficult. So you've got to be realistic, you've got to be... Uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult, uh, especially after such a big result. Uh, but if you're a good rider, you do the right things, I think it does come back, it'll, it'll always end up there or thereabouts again. So, uh, yeah, you just got to be patient and just keep doing keep doing things right, it'll be okay. What have you got after this, Hugh, after the Vuelta? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think maybe go to Italy for a couple of days and then uh, tour Lankawi. So, it's not over yet. Uh, but I'm feeling good, especially the past few days, felt good. And the motivation's come back and, yeah, looking forward to finish the season properly and hopefully uh, there's no stress in the winter, no, no problems. So, that's, that's the objective at the moment, to enjoy it and get the most out of the races and have a nice long season. I think for me, it suits me having a long season. The past few years, having a, a shorter season for, for various reasons. It's not the best. I used to enjoy racing into end of October in China. And, uh, so over this year, it'll be a good building block for, for next year as well. So, yeah, looking forward to carrying on and finishing the season nicely. What's the thing you most look forward to doing in the winter? Is there, you know, Do you have a sort of day in your mind where, you, I don't know, you're just watching films or what's it? No, I don't do much. I don't, I'm not a... I'm not much of a doer. I don't go. I don't do much for holidays and stuff. I just going to, going away anywhere? No, I've got a new house, so I'm going to go there and uh, it's getting renovated at the moment. So I'm in Pamplona. No, 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 in, in England. Uh, I've got a dog, so and with a dog you can't go anywhere. It's the, it's the so, uh, no, just looking forward to being, especially when you spend a year away from England, uh, it's nice to go back and spend a few months there and just not do anything. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. 
Science and Sport have a discount code for all cycling podcast listeners. As I'm sure you know, it gives 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com and the code is SISCP25. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Larry, la cena de ayer, uh, we were in a place, what was it called, Oropesa, um, about 15 kilometers from the start today in Talavera de la Reina, and I had wild boar last night, I had some jabalí, not very vegetarian, I know, it's pretty good, and I also had some vegetable tempura, which I wasn't aware was a Spanish dish, but I've had that a couple of times, I'm not particularly healthy, um, I... I fully acknowledge but we're only a couple of days from madrid so i'm looking forward to eating some greens um, in the not too distant future larry tomorrow we are going to well a mountain range that has played host to some fantastic battles in the vuelta España. usually late in the vuelta España, it's often decided the vuelta España. we alluded to it earlier in the ritmo de la vuelta it's called the sierra de guadarrama and before you present tomorrow's stage. Let's hear from someone who hails from the Sierra de Guadarrama. It's Carlos Verona. I'm from there. I think most of the cyclists that we are from central Spain, we train there. Contador used to train there also for his biggest races. Uh, yeah, I think it's quite hard, no? Not, not the Alps, not the Pyrenees. But I think we have some good climbs. I think it will be a hard stage. And I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And I've been there watching other races. I remember when I was 10 years old, watching there La Vuelta several times. And yeah, for sure, it's a special place. Well, Larry, that was Carlos Verona just telling us what a, an important location the Sierra de Guadarrama is, not only in terms of the Vuelta de España and its history, but also for the, the cyclists, the professional cyclists who live around Madrid. Carlos himself is from San Lorenzo de El Escorial, which is just at the foot of the Sierra de Guadarrama. And he'll have a key role tomorrow, I would suggest. But, um, Larry, tell us a little bit more about the stage. Okay, so tomorrow is stage 20 from Moral Zarzal to Puerto de Navacerada. Um, it's 181 kilometers with 3,965 meters of elevation gain. So actually one of the hardest in terms of elevation gain of the entire Vuelta. Um, so it's five climbs, four quite big ones and one a little bit smaller. And the last climb is 10K at 5.6%, but the last three climbs all come in like quite quick succession. So I believe we will see quite a battle that I could expect opening up uh, pretty early. So it'll be a really exciting stage to watch tomorrow. We'll be opening up early and that will be instigated by Movistar? No, I think it's going to be instigated by UAE. I just think, like uh, like we talked about yesterday, I think Movistar has too much to lose, and they're going to be pretty happy with the points they'll get um, from Enric Moss uh, remaining in second place. Well, as I said, the Vuelta has often been decided in these mountains. It was decided there, well, I'm just going to pick two at random, 1989, it was uh, Perico Delgado against Fabio Parra, Delgado coming out on top. 2015 Tom Dumoulin against Fabio Aru Aru came on top that time but if we are looking to the past it would be useful to have someone who's known renowned for their wistful gazing um, I think you know regular listeners know who I'm talking about and I think we have possibly been joined by Fran Reyes I can see him trying to log in Fran are you there 
Ah, Fran, are you there? Are you recording? Are you in the sound booth? Yes, indeed, Mr. Friba. Hello, Mr. Larry Warbas. Hello, dear listeners. Here I am, ready to help you out, tell what is going to happen in Madrid. Are you wistfully gazing out of your window towards the distant peaks of the Sierra de Guadarrama um, with, I don't know, images of Enric Mas storming the Vuelta a España on the Navacerada tomorrow in your mind's eye, Fran? Well, uh, to be honest, even even if as I'm as further as I can go with my imagination on this hotel room in Madrid, I frankly can't picture Movistar and Enric Mas going head-on on the offensive tomorrow. They're, I mean, actually, the only team that has an interest on going on from very early is um, UAE Team Emirates because Miguel Angel Lopez he can wait for the final climb to beat Juan Ayuso uh, Carlos Rodriguez is more or less out of the equation because of his problems uh, his crash sorry and uh, I, as for by the way by the way chaps yeah. I discovered today that um, Carlos Rodriguez has been informed that his nickname is now Sugarman Sugarman <laughs> Um, and he's completely nonplussed and completely flummoxed by this. He has got no idea um, about its origin. Uh, it was someone tried to explain to him that it was related to the documentary film "Searching for Sugarman" about the artist formerly known as Rodriguez, but um, also yeah, this, from Michigan. Uh, yes, correct from Detroit. But this yeah. raised not a flicker of interest. <laughs> okay. I mean, he's too young. He's a millennial, Daniel. We can't well, interest. Not, he's, he's not. He's very much uh, not a millennial. He's Gen, Gen Z, Z now. Z, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's true. It's I'm true. millennial. Uh, it's I'm true. a millennial, Larry. Yeah, you're a millennial too. Yeah, I, I always mix anyway, up Frank. set with millennial. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, what were you going to to say, Daniel? Um, I don't know. Uh, traditionally, at this point in the evening, you say something. You tell us a story about an ex-girlfriend, and yeah, um, I hope hope that you've been on. <laughs> some kind of love safari with an ex-girlfriend in the Sierra de Guadarrama don't, don't give us too many details about that no you know what I was thinking about before tuning into the podcast was about two beautiful conversations on one I participated the other one was overheard you know that yesterday we were in Piornal which was a very very small town in the mountains in Extremadura so what I love about these kind of finishes, finish lines, like the one we will have in Abaterrada tomorrow, actually, is that we arrive to very small villages and we take advantage of this condition of cycling as being the only sport that can visit you to your actual doors, doorstep, you know? And um, there, as I was grabbing some watermelon from the press buffet, uh, a couple of persons, a couple of people approached me to say, hey, who do you work for? Well, I work for this and this other media. Okay, can you please talk to Javier Guillén and tell him to come back next year? Because we really loved having the Vuelta here. This excitement is quite unique, but also better, even better. Um, on these kind of ma small villages, everyone is out there helping out with the organization of the finish line, helping out to pull off the best Vuelta stage possible. So, and this also means that local people interact and they are smiling and they are happy and 
yesterday I overheard these conversations because between two of the volunteers that were working at the Volta. And the one woman was telling an older one that she was pregnant. That she was pregnant and he was carrying a, a baby boy. And it was so beautiful to feel this sense of community around cycling and the Volta. Is that, is that wistful enough for you guys? That is certainly very wistful. Yeah. And <laughs> um, very, someone's offering me a sandwich right now. Um, Take it. No, that's certainly very wistful and very romantic, Fran. I wouldn't expect anything else from you. But Fran, I think that's about as much wistfulness and romance as we can, well, that we can take for one evening. Um, our time is also nearly up this evening. So I think that concludes the night's, the evening's entertainment. Um, I'm going to thank you both. Larry, we will be speaking to you again on Sunday for our grand finale. Fran, who knows yep. what you'll conjure up for us tomorrow when we reconvene, <laughs> I think, on the Puerto de Navacerada. Okay. Um, but I look forward to it. I look forward to it every night. So, chaps, it's good night from me. And Good night, everyone. And good night from Fran, I think. Good night. <laughs> The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.